All right. Hey, guys. Good to see you again. Um, it was actually really good to see you yesterday um, down at Marina Green. Well, for me, it's yesterday. For you guys watching this on Sunday, it would have been a week ago. I'm recording a little early this week because Melissa and I are heading up to my mom's for a couple days. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was really great to see all you guys, um, you know, after a really long time of not being able to to gather together um, as a church. And so we did that on uh, Easter, which was, you know, yesterday, last week, whatever. Um, and now we're going to get back today into the book of Luke. And so what we're going to do today is a little bit different. We're um, going to read a text that we already taught through once. Um, so two weeks ago, we read this same section here in Luke chapter 8. And we talked about um, what this passage tells us about God's sovereignty and God's timing in our lives. And what we do when that timing is different from um, kind of our own timing and our own uh, way of seeing things. And um, as I was studying this passage originally, it was supposed to be just that one verse, um, but I had a hard time kind of pinning a theme down, which is um, when I'm teaching, this is one of the things I do, I write down different themes, and I had a hard time just getting to one that I really wanted to teach. I wanted to talk about God's timing, um, but I noticed a lot of other things in this passage that I also wanted to talk about, um, and a lot of other commentators and preachers and different people um, also kind of had that same, uh, you know, they were all kind of in these different veins. So um, some of them, the first group uh, talked about, and this is the main point of this passage really, is to continue to talk about Jesus's power over death, and when he raises uh, Jairus's daughter at the end of the text. Um, that's really kind of the main point of the passage. But we did a whole sermon covering a lot of those themes when we talked about um, Jesus' power over death when he raised uh, the son of the widow in the town of Nain when he walked up and touched the coffin. So we already covered that. I didn't want to do the whole same sermon again, even though those passages are very similar and the themes are very similar. Um, and so I went a different direction. The second direction is what we did do, which was God's sovereignty and timing. And uh, we covered that two weeks ago because, um, you know, uh, this last week was Easter. Uh, but there was a third theme as I was writing, as I was studying and writing that kept popping up. And it's another major theme in this passage. And um, it's the theme of faith and looking at this story and these two people, the woman and uh, Jairus, uh, the unnamed woman and Jairus, and talking about their faith and sort of um, comparing their faith and looking at, you know, what are the differences, what do they have in common, and uh, looking at how they interact with Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today, because as I was going, I couldn't decide, do I want to talk about timing or do I want to talk about faith? And so I just figured, like the meme says, why not both, right? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to... Um, we're going to go over this exact same passage that we already taught last time. Um, here's how this is going to work. We're going to read the text, and then we're going to do a seven-point sermon. Now, um, when I went to seminary, they taught us all about three-point sermons and how people don't have attention spans for anything more than that. And uh, I don't quite believe that. But anyway, today we're going to try something a little different. We're going to go for uh, the whole shebang, right? We're going to do a seven-point sermon. Now, in this seven-point sermon, all these seven points are loosely related, but they don't like build on each other necessarily. There's, it's just as I was writing, there were seven things in this passage that I thought, wow, that's a good um, kind of thought about faith and what is faith. And as we're trying to grow our own faith, we can learn from this. So um, we're going to do all seven of these points. You don't have to remember all seven. Maybe pick one or two and think about it this week. Um, but let me read the passage first, um, and then we'll... Um, Start with point one. All right, so here's the passage. Uh, now, when Jesus returned, 
it's from coming across the Sea of Galilee from the from healing the um, the uh, the demon possessed man of the legion of demons and killing the pigs and that whole story. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. So we talked about this. I'm going to just recap some of this as we're going along, just in case you missed the sermon a couple weeks ago. But uh, the ruler of the synagogue is a lot like what we would call um, like a senior or lead pastor at a, at a church today, right? Except in this culture, that was also mixed in with, um, you know, the business and the culture of the day. He was a very important guy um, in town. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter— about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and the people pressed around him. So he comes to Jesus just absolutely um, uh, desperate, and uh, he had heard that Jesus was a healer. Maybe he had seen Jesus heal people. We don't know what his previous interaction with Jesus was, but we know that he's um, in this situation now where his uh, only daughter is dying. And so he comes to Jesus, and he begs Jesus. He humbles himself before Jesus. Um, he's, he's a very important guy, and here he is falling at Jesus' feet, uh, and he's begging him to come heal. So Jesus goes with Jairus, and they start heading through town. Um, let's see, verse 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of, a blood for, of, of blood for about 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So while they're heading to uh, heal uh, Jesus is heading to heal Jairus's daughter. Uh, this woman, part of the crowd, she has this uh, this issue and this discharge of blood, and she's been dealing with this for years, and she's gone broke uh, trying to pay the doctors, and nothing has worked, and she's been, and we talked about this before, uh, this would have made her ceremonially unclean, which was a huge deal in this day, and uh, this, this has basically wrecked her life, and so she thought, man, if only I could uh, if only I could touch Jesus's like you know um, garment there, like his uh, cloak thing, um, then I would be healed. And she does, and she is. And so she has a superstitious belief almost that uh, she'll be healed, and it actually works. And then Jesus stops and he says, "Who touched me?" And Peter kind of sarcastically, "Dude, everybody touched you. What are you talking about?" And Jesus goes, "No, no, no, that's not what I meant. Who like who touched me? Who grabbed me? Touched me with intent, with purpose?" He says, "I feel power has gone out from me." And the woman, she comes knowing that she's busted, basically trembling. And Jesus has this whole conversation with her and he, he talks to her about her faith and he will get into some of this in a minute. And he has this wonderful conversation and he sends her away uh, in peace, right? Instead of just thinking she had robbed Jesus of this miracle. Now she knows that she's been healed because of faith. Meanwhile, all this time, Jairus is standing there thinking, why is Jesus having this conversation? What is going on? This woman will still be in the exact same state in an hour from now, but my daughter might be dead by then. And you can just, we talked about the tension, right? And the just bubbling up inside Jairus's heart and the, the anxiety um, is probably really getting to him. And right when all this was happening, verse 49 
Uh, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And so you can imagine Jairus' heart and his whole soul and the, the drops right into the pit of his stomach. And he probably fell down and wailing in front of everybody and crying. Um, but Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And that's going to be one of our key verses today. We're going to talk about that. And when he came to the house, so, so Jesus says, let's go anyway. So when they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except uh, Peter and John and James, the father and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, this is Jesus says to this crowd of mourners, do not weep for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. So Jesus comes to the house where all the professional mourners, and this was an important guy. So a lot of people from town are there and the girl is lying dead in the room. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. She's just taking a nap. And everybody starts making fun of him. Um, and Jesus was using the, the idea of sleeping, right, for as a euphemism for death. But uh, we talked about that last time. Um, so they laughed at him, uh, knowing that she was dead, verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once. That's how we know she was dead. Her spirit came back. Uh, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. So he, he takes her up from a nap. His power over death like uh, we wake up a kid from a nap, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them uh, to tell no one what had happened because um, he was trying to control the idea of the narrative of the of what the Messiah would be, right, um, in this Jewish region. Um, anyway, so that's our story. Okay, so as we read this story, the one of the big themes we talked about last week was the the idea of or two weeks ago, was the idea of God's timing and just Jairus standing there with his anxiety. And so we covered that last time. So today what I want to do is I want to talk about faith. And I want to say here's our seven-point sermon, right, is seven things that this passage, seven ideas that we can pull out of this passage to learn more um, about faith and what it means to follow Jesus. So uh, the first one, let's just get into this, right? Number one, um, faith means intimacy, uh, not just being near Jesus, right? So there's more than to faith than just being around Jesus. Um, as the crowd uh, was moving towards Jairus's house, and, uh, you know, I said last time it was like, it's probably a big crowd like um, uh, when you're leaving a ball game. If anybody remembers actually going to a baseball game, uh, you know, that's what it, you know, when you're going down those stairs and everybody's kind of doing this and you can't really move and people are pressing against you, right? Everybody in this crowd was touching Jesus, bumping into him. And this is why Peter even responded the way he did with his sort of disrespectful sarcasm when Jesus asked him, who touched me? Peter's like, dude, everybody touched you. What are you talking about? Um, uh, but out of all of those people that were touching Jesus and bumping into him, only one of those people was healed, and that person was the unnamed woman. Now, uh, the point is, it's possible um, to be around Jesus uh, without faith. It's possible to be around him and bumping into Jesus uh, without sort of uh, really coming in contact with Jesus. Uh, going to church really has no bearing on your salvation. And we see this all throughout Scripture, that there's examples of of people that think, if I can just be around uh, God, if I can just be around Jesus, then I'm good, right? Then I don't need the intimacy. Um, in Isaiah 111, this is one of those verses. There's a ton of these verses in the Old Testament. But in 111, um, 
the book of Isaiah, the beginning of it, God is sort of making, it's like a courtroom scene and God is bringing the charges against the people. And this is one of these charges that they're just doing, they're going through the motions, they're at the temple, they're around God, but they're not really um, in covenant with him. They're not really being his family. They're not being his children. Um, in one eleven, it says, Whoa, um, sorry, what is, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offering of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lamb uh, or of goats. And he kind of goes on. But he's basically saying, you guys are making all these sacrifices. You're going to the temple. You're following the rules that I've set out like to a T. And you're going through the motions, but your heart isn't in it. And it, it he was saying, cut it out. Like, I'd rather just have, don't even, um, don't even pretend is what God was saying. He was sick of the religion without the heart, uh, without the intimacy. Jesus picked up the same theme um, in this section in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So if you look carefully at this passage, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to church people, right? These are people who are there every Sunday. Look at, I prophesied in your name and I did this in your name and I was on this committee and I went on this missions trip and I did all of this stuff in your name. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, but I never knew you. Jesus said, all you did was bump into me, right? All, that's all you did. You were around me, right? But you weren't part of the family. Now, while I was reading and while I was studying this passage, um, I noticed that a lot of commentators and a lot of preachers and different theologians and folks picked up on this same connection. They seemed to ask this same question. Why is it that she was healed, but none of the other people who touched and bumped into Jesus were healed, right? Weren't they all touching Jesus? If she was just healed by the touch, then what's going on with all these other people? Well, what does Jesus say? When he talks to her, what is, what's the reason he gives that she was healed? Um, it wasn't um, some sort of a superstitious um, magician's thing where everybody who touches his cloak gets healed. Look at what he says in verse 48. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so last time I basically glossed over this verse a little bit, and we didn't talk about it a ton because I wanted to save it for today. Um, do you remember what I said last time about why Jesus stopped the whole procession that was headed towards um, towards Jairus' house to heal the daughter? Why did he stop and have this conversation with this woman? From our perspective, it seems really weird, right? Um, there was a very serious, like, deadly problem at the other end at Jairus' house. And here's a lady just with a, with a chronic problem who could wait an hour. He could have gone... And he told this lady, wait here, I'll be back, gone and healed the girl and come back. But he didn't do that, right? He stopped and he had this conversation. Why did he talk to this lady? Um, it's because some deep down or wherever on the surface, whatever, she thought she was healed uh, because of some kind of a magic touch or something like that. She was superstitious and Jesus didn't want her to leave and then live her whole life thinking that that's what happened, thinking that that's the truth. And so he stopped to have this conversation with her and to teach her this lesson about faith. And he says, it's your faith that has made you well, not superstition, not something else. It was your faith that has made you well. It wasn't the touch. Uh, it wasn't the cloak. It wasn't whatever. It was your faith. Um, but with this woman, how do we know 
that she had faith? What do we know about her faith? Where did it come from? How did her faith start? That brings us to our second big idea about faith, which is that faith begins in desperation. And so in our text, we have two people who act in faith. We have Jairus, who is just from the very get-go, he is completely desperate. He runs up to Jesus, he falls down before him, and he's begging him to come heal his daughter. Um, We also have the faith of the unnamed woman, right? And the unnamed woman, um, she's in this, Luke describes in detail her desperate situation. She's got this bleeding problem, and uh, she's been very sick, and, you know, she's been very ill, and she... um, She's out of money, and she's just completely at the end of her rope. And this is sort of her last-ditch effort. Now, the system of Babylon, the system of the world that we live in, um, uh, tends to value strength and power, right? We love the strong, and we love powerful. Um, Now, when we look at this text, though, which one of these two people was strong and powerful, right? Which one of these was either of those things? Which one of these two folks? Neither, right? Um, In our lives, though, we really want to have everything together. Um, But sometimes God sends trials and troubles on purpose to strengthen our faith. And so when we suffer and when we struggle, um, our natural inclination is to mope around and to feel sorry for ourselves and to say, oh, why why me, Lord? Why am I going through this? But sometimes our pride, the pride that's within us, has such a strong hold on us that God needs to knock us down a little bit so that we can get to this place of desperation so that we genuinely need him so that our faith will grow. And I know this firsthand because this is exactly how I came to faith. Um, I had... You don't need all the details, but uh, I was a very proud kid because I was good at a lot of stuff. You know, I played sports. I got good grades, whatever. And... um, so in junior high and high school, like I was a very arrogant little punk. And if I, if 37 year old John knew 15 year old John, I would have hated my guts. Right. Um, I was not a nice person. I was mean and uh, sarcastic and, um, well, anyway. Uh, and so what happened was the way that I came to faith right there in the middle of maybe junior year, somewhere around there of high school was I just had a whole bunch of really bad things happen to me. Um, all in the span, uh, all in the span of about a year. But what really happened in that situation was God was peeling away, like all the the pride, right? Like, uh, what's the story from you know the preachers always use of the uh, Eustace in the Don Treader when he becomes the dragon, and then um, you know the lion Aslan comes and peels away, you know, basically scratches him away, and it hurts really bad. But at the end of it, right, he turns back into a boy. Well, that's kind of what happened to me, right? God just absolutely broke me down so that I was nothing. And it was at that moment that I realized how much I needed grace, right? How horrible I was and how much I needed grace. And this is also, not to compare myself with the Apostle Paul, but this is what happened with Paul, right? Is God knocked him off that donkey or horse or whatever was happening and put him on the ground and blinded him and said, you belong to me now, right? He, I mean, he he humbled Saul, Paul, whatever, you know. I mean, he really knocked him over so that he could pick him up and put him back together. And, um... Just the way you kind of got to th- think about this, right, is if God has power over sickness, like we've been reading, um, why did this lady suffer for 12 years? God could have stopped that earlier. If God has the power over death, uh, why did he let the little girl die? Uh, we don't know the whole scope. And this is what we talked about last time. We don't know the whole scope of God's plan. We don't always know what we're up to, but we're given peaks sometimes. And here we see one sort of instance where God used the desperation of these two people to grow their faith and to bring them along 
um, in the process of faith. Um, James 1.3 talks about this, and James says, Jesus' brother says, this is exactly what the Lord does. It says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, right? So, um, you know, we should, in a verse, I think it's in Romans, where he says, we should rejoice in our sufferings, right? Because we know that our sufferings basically turn into faith, right? And so, just sort of applying this thought to ourselves. If the most important thing in your life is comfort, then suffering is the absolute worst thing that can happen to you. But if uh, the most important thing in your life is following King Jesus, then all of a sudden the idea of him knocking you down a little bit so that he can put you back together and give you a stronger faith, like it says in Romans, is actually something that you can rejoice in. And that's a major theme here, right? That faith in Jesus is the biggest thing in our life, and it's even worth suffering for. That faith should be the most important. Faith in Christ should be the ultimate. And that's our third point, right? Is um, faith is about um, the object of that faith uh, and not about the strength of that faith. Let me tell you what I mean. So, again, our world, we love power and strength, and we love the idea of strong and you know powerful people. And a lot of times... And we love to be good at stuff, right? And we like to think about um, like successful people and, you know, we read books about how to be more successful and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so a lot of times that idea of the American work ethic and dream and all that stuff carries over uh, into our idea of faith. I need to be stronger so that I will have greater faith. But is that really what we see here with the faith of the woman or with the faith of Jairus? No, right? We In this text, we don't see powerful people growing in faith. What we see is desperate and broken people putting their faith in someone who is powerful, right? Do you see the difference? They're not powerful. Jesus is. We need him to be strong because we are weak. Um, Tim Keller, uh, there were two phenomenal sermons I read on this passage um, as I was teaching. Well, three, really. There was a Spurgeon one, and then Tim Keller wrote one, and D.A. Carson, Don Carson wrote one, too. So I'm going to quote from, I think, all of those here. Uh, Tim Keller says this. Um, this is kind of a lengthy quote, but I wanted to, I was going to paraphrase this and just steal it from him, but I thought I'll just read the whole thing. He says it better than I'm going to. Um, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. It's not the dimension of your faith, it's the direction. What what do you have faith in? See, this is a, a 180 degree uh, opposite to what uh, the common view of man or woman on the street is today. Uh, what do you hear over and over again? He says, I hear it in the op-ed pages, I hear it on talk shows, I hear it in books, I hear it everywhere. They say, and this is so true, this is what the world says, they say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all of your might. And Jesus is saying here, it doesn't matter how heartily you believe as long as you're believing in the right thing. It's the exact opposite, totally opposite. Do you see that? What what Keller is getting at here is there's this narrative in our world that says, well, your faith doesn't matter what it's in as long as you, you, you're genuine about your faith. But that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, um, faith is you know, putting your belief into action, right? It's one way to describe faith. And so if I put my faith in a chair, I sit down on that chair. Does it matter how much I believe that chair is going to hold me up if it holds me up or not? No, it matters how strong the chair is, right? A lot of times, so I mean, I guess what I'm saying is if you really believe that a chair is going to hold you up and you're really strong in that belief and then you sit in a broken chair, it's going to collapse below you, right? Or you could maybe only kind of believe that a chair is going to hold you up and then you sit in that chair 
and it holds you up. Okay, which one of those was the better chair? Which one of those was the stronger faith? Another illustration that I've used a lot with you guys that I really love um, is the sort of talking about faith like an airplane, right? Um, one person, imagine two people getting on a, on a flight um, and uh, they're sitting on the plane and one of those people is terrified of flying, just absolutely just mortified. And the entire time they're anxious and they're sweating and every little bump, uh, they freak out and they shake. What was that? What was that kind of thing, right? And then the other person isn't. The other person uh, is totally fine and flies all the time, doesn't care, you know, is completely not phased by flying. Now, both of those people get on the plane. You know, one freaks out, one just sits there and reads a book and has a cocktail, whatever. Then the plane lands. Uh, who lands safer? Right? Both, right? It's the same for both. And that's kind of what Keller is getting at here, is it's more important that the plane can fly if you're on it, right? What you have to do is just you have to get on the plane. And uh, and so what we see here with this story is we have two people who, uh, honestly, their faith is not like the centurion's faith that we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? It's not this great faith, uh, but, you know, they're putting their faith in the one who is strong enough to hold them, right? In the plane that works. All right, so here's the fourth thing. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. Faith and fear uh, don't go together. So let me read to you again from um, the passage. This is a verse, where are we? 49. So let me jump back. What am I reading? 49 through 51. Now, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, but only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter uh, with him except Peter, James, and John, the father of the, um, the father and mother of the child. Okay, so this seems like an odd response there in verse 50, doesn't it? Um, from Jesus. You know, like Jesus says, uh, wait, let me read it exactly. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Um, what is fear? Let's think about this for a sec. What does it mean to be afraid? What fear really is, is a lack of trust in God's providence, right? It's a lack of belief that God has things in control, that God knows what he's doing and he's working like Romans eight twenty eight says, he's working everything out for good for those who love him, right? Um, faith, when we're talking about faith, uh, in D.A. Carson, in that sermon, you know, I told you I read a lot of sermons, that sort of stuff. He preached a sermon. Oh, I just wrote it down. Where did I put that? Oh, it's called Who Touched Me um, on this passage. And um, this is probably one of my, this sermon was phenomenal. If you can Google that and find it, it's called Who Touched Me by D.A. Carson. One of my favorite sermons I've ever read. I listened as I read it, right? Anyway, he says this. In the New Testament, in other words, faith is a God-given ability to perceive certain things that are true and to trust your whole life to them and to him who establishes their truthfulness. So, like, faith is a two-sided coin, right? Faith is belief and trust. You believe something, and so you trust and you, you act on that belief. Fear, then, is the opposite of that faith. Fear is the belief that God isn't in control and just a lack of trust in what he is doing. So when Jairus now is falling apart, Jesus says to him, not, you need to believe more. What Jesus says is, don't fear, right? Your, your fear right now is because you're not trusting God. And so what does Jairus do? This is really interesting, and a lot of folks kind of glossed over this. But if you read the story carefully, there's a pretty important detail here. Jesus, the guy comes and tells Jairus, your daughter's dead. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Let's, she'll be fine. Now, you're, 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 you're on your knees, and you're, you're weeping, and you're, you're uh, just 
brokenhearted because somebody just came and told you your daughter is dead. And there's this guy saying, don't worry about it. I'm going to fix things. You have two options here. You can call him a nut job and tell him to go away, or you can go with him and believe that he's going to do it. And that's what Jairus does, right? He acts in faith. He gets up and he walks to the house and he goes with Jesus and he brings Jesus into the room with his little girl's dead body, right? It's a, it's a, it's an act of faith. His trust in Jesus is put into action. He believed in Jesus. Um, in his framework, in his his theological framework, the idea of Jesus bringing back somebody from the dead probably didn't exist. He thought maybe, you know, we saw this in the Old Testament, but that was a one-off thing. This guy, this guy can probably heal people, but I doubt that he can bring people back from the dead. But when Jesus says, I can do this, he gets up and he walks with Jesus. He trusted anyway. So here's the fifth, the fifth idea. We're just going to keep going here. Here's the fifth idea. Grace um, reverses the values of the world, right? Um, the, the kingdom of God is the upside down kingdom, which we've been talking a lot about in the book of Luke. Now we can't look at this story and read this text here with Western sort of postmodern eyes. We have to get into the world of uh, the, the first century in the ancient Near East. We have to get into this world. Otherwise, we're really going to miss a lot of this story. And this text has one of those areas that just our Western eyes reading through would completely miss. There's a major idea here that's so easy for us to just gloss over because we didn't grow up in this culture. So let me tell you maybe a more modern version of this story that's really not a perfect ana analogy. But imagine that somebody tells you a story. And in that story, there's two characters. Let's say one of those characters is Betty White, and the other one is a convicted uh, Ponzi scheme, fake Wall Street dude like Bernie Madoff or one of those guys, right? Now, imagine that the, in this story, these two are put up, Betty White and Bernie Madoff or whoever are put up side by side. And um, uh, in our eyes, of course, we know when we think of that, right, we think Betty White, she's a national treasure, right? She's a well-respected and talented actress who, I mean, she's done some amazing things in her life. Uh, she does the animal rights stuff back in the day um, when she had an African-American guy on her show and people started writing letters. She basically said, tough, deal with it, and then had the guy on the show even more to the point where they canceled her, right? She's done a lot of really cool stuff. She seems humble. Everybody loves Betty White. Um, and then you've got Bernie Madoff, who's a scumbag who ripped everybody off. Now, imagine in this story, um, I tell you a story about these two, and in the story... Betty White kind of comes off not looking great and Bernie Madoff comes off uh, looking even better. You would think that's a really odd thing for John to be talking about, for John to say. That's kind of what is going on here. Um, in this text, it's not Jairus's faith. It's not Betty White, right? The respected community leader who comes off commendable, right? It's the unnamed woman who comes out looking a lot more amazing. Um, look at these two when we compare them side by side. Jairus is a community leader uh, in the probably in the business world there and um, in the synagogue in the church. He's probably wealthy as he would have had to have been to be the um, the leader there in the synagogue. He has a family. Uh, he's a man in this culture that was kind of a big deal. This is a patriarchal culture. He has the respect of this big crowd because there's all these people following to his house. We know when they get to the house, there's a big crowd of mourners. He's an important guy. Now let's look at the woman. Let's look at the story of the unnamed woman. She's not even named, which in this culture, again, that was a huge deal, not even to put her name in there because nobody knew her name. 
Um, again, she's a woman, not a man, which in this culture was a big deal. She's been sick for years, 12 years this woman's been sick. And anybody in the first century reading this would have thought of that as a sign that God has been punishing her, right? God was out to get her for something, some sort of sin in her life. Um, again, that same theme is um, God's out to get her because she's also, she's broke, right? She spent all of her money on doctors. And what family does this woman have, right? She's completely, in the story, she's presented as completely alone. And so we have these two people, right, that to their eyes was Betty White and Bernie Madoff kind of a thing. Um, and so with uh, no context, anybody in this culture would have expected Jairus to come out looking good and her to be sort of disrespected. Um, and we don't really get that because we don't quite do this the same with our Western values that have been honestly shaped a lot by Christianity. We try not to do this, but people in this culture definitely would have looked at this story with those eyes. Now, Looking at it like that, who comes out on top? She does. How? Well, Jesus specifically makes Jairus wait so he can talk to this woman. He says, basically, right now in this moment, her needs are more important than yours, Jairus. And um, at the end, Jesus has this, at the end of that conversation, Jesus says a couple of things to her that really show us what's going on, right? In verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. The first thing is he calls her daughter. And I said this last time, this is the only woman in the New Testament that Jesus calls daughter. And that was like a massive deal. He says, basically, you're part of the family. And he specifically commends her faith. Now, he doesn't go as far as the centurion's faith. I have not seen faith like this with anybody in Israel, right? With that guy that we read. That was like the highest praise that Jesus gives anybody about their faith. But what he does commend her faith. Your faith has made you well. And then he offers her peace and salvation as she goes. Now, what does Jesus say about Jairus' faith? Right? Well, he doesn't commend his faith. He does say at one point that he's acting out of fear as opposed to faith. Uh, although Jairus does have some bright spots, right? He does end up going with Jesus. Um, but at the end of the story with Jairus, there's no dialogue like there is with the woman. And to any first century reader, that whole idea is massive. And it's another example of how Luke is specifically challenging the way that this world saw people. And the people in this culture looked at like there's a hierarchy. And they're saying, look, this is the upside down kingdom of God. Faith isn't about worldly prestige or status. You don't inherit faith. It doesn't matter how much money you have. None of this. Faith is about humbly trusting Jesus. Carson, D.A. Carson, again in that sermon, he says this, I want to tell you that if a broken, disgraced, fearful, frightened woman in the first century has her faith commended by Jesus, then you are welcome to come and trust in Christ. The faith that is commended here in this double account is the faith that is not only desperate, but broken. It's not the faith of the strong, it's the faith of the weak. It's not the faith of the respected, but the faith of the disgraced. It's not the faith of the bold, right? Like Jairus was bold, but it's the faith of the frightened. I love that, that this woman's faith, she's not the one you would expect to come out sort of the, almost the hero of this story, but she is because the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Babylon. And, uh, Okay, so let's keep going. Actually, we let's see how much time. I don't know how much time I spent. Let's keep going. I'll get you out of here before tomorrow. Uh, number six. So we have two more. Number six. Faith gives us more than we bargain for. Now, this is an important point. Think about this. In our text, as you read this story, 
what were each of these two people looking for when they came to Jesus? Let's talk about the woman. What was the woman, the unnamed woman, looking for? She was looking for a quick theft of a miracle. Think about that. She was hoping to steal a healing from Jesus without him even knowing. She didn't even want to meet Jesus for some reason because she was afraid. It doesn't really say. Uh, probably because she didn't think Jesus would heal her because that would make him unclean to touch her. And that's probably what was going on, but it doesn't specifically say that. Now, Jairus, what was Jairus expecting from Jesus? He wanted a miracle over sickness. Now, did either of these two people get what they came uh, looking for? At the end of the story, do either of them end up where they thought they were going to be? No, right? Not even close. What did they get? What did the unnamed woman get? She got so much more than she bargained for. She got a personal interaction with Jesus. She wasn't um, healed by superstition. She had a faith experience. And at the end, she didn't walk away healed, but saved, right? You remember that Greek word we talked about, sozo, um, it has that double meaning. It can mean saved or healed. And we know that she was healed because of the way Jesus told her to go in peace. It doesn't just mean go and don't fight anybody, right? But what it means is go in the peace that you know that your sins have been forgiven. Go in the peace that the burden of the weight of sin has been lifted off of you, right? And so where is this woman now? I mean, the, the way the text implies is that she walked away saved. And if that's true, this woman now is with Jesus in eternity, that's like if you played the lotto and you did a scratch off or something. I don't know how the lottery works. But if you went in, you played the lotto, and you think you won a dollar. And so you go down to the lottery office or wherever you pick up your dollar to collect your dollar. And when you get down there, they say, no, 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 you've made a mistake. You didn't win a dollar. You won the jackpot. You won the whole thing, right? You've won the biggest lottery in history, $800 million or whatever. I don't know how much is the biggest lottery in history. But she showed up thinking she was going to get a dollar and she left with $800 million, right? She thought she was going to get healed of this sickness and she ended up with a savior for all of eternity. She got way more than she bargained for. Same deal with Jairus, right? What did he want? He wanted a miracle over sickness. He wanted his daughter to be healed. But what did he get to see instead? Not only was his daughter healed, but she was raised from the dead. He got a front row seat to watch Jesus raise somebody from the dead. He got a front row seat to see God in the flesh show his power over death itself. Um, that's something that not a lot of people got to see Jesus do. Okay, And so he left with way more than he bargained for. Now, in our own lives, if Jesus is Lord and your faith walk, if Jesus really is your Lord, if he really is your king, which is what we're trying to get across here in this book of Luke, then he gets to call the shots in your life. And uh, um, that means that you're probably not going to get what you expected from him. You're going to come to faith and you're going to live your life with certain expectations, but it's almost never going to work out that way. But it's just like we talked about last week. If if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he is who Luke says he is here, then he has the power to bend over and get down on a knee and pick up a girl from death and just say, you know, like waking up a girl from sleep, like the power over death. If he really has that kind of power, and we said this last time, if he says, hold on a minute, I need you to wait, then you should, he probably has a reason. And if he really does have this power, then he um, has the right to make big decisions in your life and to do what he wants on his time scale. And you know that it's going to be better than anything that you would have asked for. 
Both of these people came to Jesus expecting a dollar, and they left with $800 million. It's, this, it's always the same with us when we follow Jesus. You're not going to get what you asked for. You're going to get something better. But again, when I say better, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not Joel Osteen up here. Um, better doesn't always mean easier in the short term, right? It was, look at the woman. She got, what she got was better, but it was harder. She had to go in front of this entire crowd and admit what she had done. Admit that she had walked up ceremonially unclean and touched a famous rabbi and rendered him ceremonially unclean in front of everybody. And she knew everybody in that crowd was judging her. And everybody in that crowd was probably looking down at her. But in the end, what did she leave with? Was it worth it to have that conversation with Jesus and to have to come trembling to Jesus? Was it worth it? Yes. She ended with salvation. That's a way better trade-off because Jesus is worth it. And that's our seventh point. Jesus is worthy of our faith. And this is the wrap-up here for the whole section that started in chapter 8, verse 22, right? With these four sections where Luke is really making a point to show the power of Jesus. He has the power over nature. When he talked about, uh, when Luke tells us about how Jesus uh, calmed the storm, he has the power over the supernatural when Jesus healed the man with the legion of demons. He has the power over sickness when he heals the woman, the unnamed woman, and power over death when he heals the daughter of Jairus. Now, um, remember what I said earlier, um, uh, earlier in this sermon, uh, what we want to do is take our faith no matter how strong it is, and we want to place it in something or someone who is worthy of it. We want a plane that's going to land, and we want a chair that's going to hold us up. Someone or something that is powerful. That someone is Jesus Christ, and that's the point that Luke is making. Now, how much faith do you need? Remember, Jesus is the plane, and so how much faith do you have to have? Just enough to get on the plane. Now, the more faith you have, the more trust that you have in Jesus, the easier the plane ride will be. The plane will shake and hit the turbulence, and you'll just be drinking your cocktail and reading your book while other people will be freaking out. But both of you guys will get to land, right? In the end, really, all you need is to get on the plane. Hopefully, your faith in Christ will grow and grow and grow so that the ride is comfortable and your trust in him grows. But really, you just need that desperate faith that comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, right, I want to get on the plane. As a church, then I really want two things to happen for us as a, our small little community. The first thing is this. I want more people to come to love this king to love our king, to look at our lives and say, I want what they have. Um, I want to trust that king. I want to trust King Jesus. I don't want to be on this plane by myself. I say this a lot, right? I want to get to heaven and I want there to be a lot of people there from San Francisco. And I want our church to be a part of that. But on the second hand, I also want our church to help people grow in their trust and faith in Jesus. I want the plane ride to be more and more comfortable for people as they grow and trust this king um, more and more. So that when we do hit turbulence like coronavirus or whatever's going on, I want our people to just sort of be like, yeah, you know what? It's cool. Jesus is flying and I trust him completely. Um, but, but how can we do that? How can we have that kind of trust in him? And the answer is basically the same answer that I give you at the end of every single sermon that I teach. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did in Holy Week that we just celebrated, Good Friday, Easter, right, where he died and rose again. He did that 
and we talked about this in the Easter sermon last week, because he has ultimate power, he's perfectly good, and he has my long-term best in mind. And we see all of those things are true with the cross. He laid down his life and he took it back up again. He did it because he's good, and he did it because uh, that's how we're saved, and he has our long-term best uh, in mind. And so let's be a church that A, is helping people get on the plane, and then B, All of us together who are on the plane are learning to trust the pilot more and more and more each and every day so that when turbulence hits, we're like, guys, it's fine. Jesus is flying the plane. Amen. All right, let's pray now and we'll thank him for who he is and what he does. Lord, we um, come before you now as a um, a community of your people, and we thank you that um, you are worthy of our faith. And Lord, we, um, as scary as it is, we pray that you would make us desperate, that you would make us, you would bring us each to the point where we want to trust you wholly, um, where where you can, you, you would take us to the point where you can build up our faith. And so we thank you that you um, give faith as a gift, and we just ask for more and more and more trust and faith in you. I pray, Lord, for the people who aren't on the plane, the people who who, who don't know you, who don't trust you, And I just, we ask, Lord, for a lot of things for our church, but ultimately the main thing we want to do is just get more people on the plane, Lord. We want you to use us in your kingdom to to bring people to you. So um, we ask that you would give us um, more more ways to love our neighbors and more boldness to to live for you in this city. And um, I just ask that our church would be a small part of um, your your massive and your wonderful uh, kingdom. We love you so much. We thank you for everything that you've done. Amen.